High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in this seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org students. That's lls.org students. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This. The podcast dedicated to exploring the secrets and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is another installment of our ongoing series, Fake News, Fact-Checking Hollywood Babylon. This isn't news. This is totally unfounded gossip. It's a long way from Hollywood. Criticized for dealing too frankly with such themes as sex and nudity. Hollywood. Babylon. Today's episode covers a character who Kenneth Anger helped to mythologize, even though he had little, if anything, to do with movie making. He wasn't an actor, director, or producer. He was a killer, a swindler, and a failure, at least within his own lifetime. And yet he has become a legend of a sort, played by no less of a star than Warren Beatty in a movie, and given credit for inventing an industry and reinventing a major American city. Here we present Kenneth Anger's version of the story in an edited excerpt from Hollywood Babylon. Handsome mobster Benjamin Bugsy Siegel 
of the flashing teeth and baby blue eyes, had, during his heyday, more of Hollywood by the balls than ever any despotic director or dictatorial studio head. Siegel grew up in New York's Hell's Kitchen, side by side with George Raft. This boyhood friendship developed into a lifelong association. Bugsy started off like many another gangland punk, raping girls while still a teenager. Through his pal George Raft, Siegel was introduced to the creme of Hollywood society and was soon hobnobbing with Richard Barthelmus, Gene Harlow, Clark Gable, Gary Cooper, and Cary Grant. One of Siegel's close business friends was the shady Marino Bello, Gene Harlow's stepfather. Bugsy was often taken to the Platinum Blonde's home by Bello, Although Harlow never warmed up to him and resisted his advances, Siegel was the only big gangland figure present at her funeral in 1937. By that same year, Bugsy's shakedown business, which fed on Hollywood extras and bit players, was going strong. It had been decided that these hordes of aspiring souls would have to pay off or go without work. Bugsy worked both ends of the fatted calf and also made the moguls pay off. If they didn't, 300 extras might disappear just when required by a producer for a mob scene. This racket netted Siegel half a million a year. The profits were put into his share of the Hollywood dope and white slave traffics. Siegel had a wife stashed away who mostly stayed out of the picture. His last big fling was with the notorious Virginia Sugar Hill, queen of the mafia. This voluptuous ex-flea circus carny girl from Alabama had risen to some sort of fame in New York as the girlfriend and hostess of affairs thrown by Lucky Luciano and Frank Costello. In 1941, she set up operations in Hollywood. Virginia ingratiated herself to Sam Goldwyn and got herself an acting plum in a great movie, a supporting role in Goldwyn's Ball of Fire, starring Gary Cooper and Barbara Stanwyck. Her liaison with the mobster had been in progress for several months by the time the picture was finished. Siegel was her escort to Ball of Fire's gala premiere and party, where the hoodlum lovers socialized with Dana Andrews, director Howard Hawks, Cooper, and Stanwyck. Siegel will not go down in history for any of his sordid criminal activities. Most of them were not that unique. But for better or worse, he has left a lasting Bugsy monument on the face of the American continent, that colossus of kitsch, Las Vegas. Siegel's grandiose scheme was to build the biggest hotel casino in the United States, He borrowed several million dollars from several shady sources, and in 1945, bought up the land surrounding a tacky hotel owned by a bankrupt widow. He moved in with an army of architects, decorators, entertainers, and bandits with one and two arms. The Flamingo was born. The metropolis of Superschlock arose out of the sands. Siegel implanted a style which flourished like a wild, flaming, out-of-control cancer in the Mojave Desert, 
one which continued to grow after his death, to become the Vegas we all know, and perhaps love, a demented highway of nouveau riche manic American playboy. The Flamingo was ready by Christmas 1946 and cost $6 million. It was slow in earning its cost back, but Siegel was already showing signs of wanting to expand. To Nevadans, it was apparent that he intended to take over not just Las Vegas, but the entire state. A few thousand new enemies were added to the long list of which Bugsy could boast. After a lover's quarrel in Vegas, Virginia packed up and left town in spring 1947. She returned to California and rented a Spanish-Moorish castle in Beverly Hills at 1810 Linden Drive. Bugsy trailed after her, and a semi-reconciliation was effected. She had accepted an invitation to travel around Europe with a wealthy French boy half her age. She left Siegel the keys to her house. Near midnight, June 20th of that year, Siegel was sitting in Virginia's living room, reading a newspaper. A fiery blast suddenly shattered the window. Bugsy Siegel lay on the couch, his ex-pretty face veiled in a thick sheet of blood, three bullets through his skull. The police investigation got nowhere. Dozens of his ex-colleagues had reasons to want Bugsy out of the way. Although no indictments were forthcoming, it has since been established that he was murdered for not repaying the vast sums he had borrowed to construct the Flamingo. Although he had often turned up at movie stars' funerals, not even a bit player turned up at his. Here are Anger's main claims. That Bugsy Siegel raped teenagers. That through George Raft, he befriended a number of Hollywood stars. That he had a shakedown business that involved bilking both movie extras and the studios they worked for. That his girlfriend, Virginia Hill, was an ex-carney turned gangster's mole. That Siegel deserves credit for setting the template for the Vegas of today with the Flamingo. And finally, that it has been, quote-unquote, established that Bugsy's murder was ordered by the Flamingo's investors. We will cover all of these matters today, but we will pay special attention to Bugsy Siegel's actual connections within Hollywood, his involvement with the Flamingo, and the question of who killed him and why he had to die. Join us, won't you, as we fact-check Kenneth Anger's version of the Bugsy Siegel story. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I frequently have this experience in therapy where I tell my analyst something that is happening or happened with someone else, and they ask me how I feel about it, And then they ask me if I have told the person in question how I feel. And a lot of the time, my answer is nope, because just telling the analyst is kind of enough. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. 
Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. Everyone needs a sounding board. Just talking to a therapist about what's going on can make you feel better. Other times, a therapist can offer strategies or new ways to frame the difficulty you're having. Maybe you'll leave your session with action items that you can work on, or maybe just talking it through will give you the perspective you need to make changes. But therapy is a good first step to figuring that out. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash YMRT today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Y-M-R-T. I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Benjamin Bugsy Siegel famously hated to be called Bugsy. Although stories vary as to whether he earned that nickname as a Jewish kid on the playgrounds of New York or as an up-and-coming gangster on the streets of New York. It was in the latter milieu that Siegel first met George Raft, who by the early 1930s would become one of the biggest gangster film stars in Hollywood. But during the 1920s, Raft was a struggling dancer who sometimes slept in the subway. Prohibition was scrambling ideas of right and wrong, of legality and respectability. I felt there was no difference between a gangster and a detective. Raft recalled later, to him, they had the same methods of working and were just trying to outsmart each other. More than that, the gangsters had great suits and nice cars, and more often than not, the police would step aside and let them have their way. Raft idolized the crooks. Later, when Raft portrayed gangsters in movies he would tell the hairstylist to comb his hair just like Bugsy Siegel wore his hair. At first, this was an inside joke between the two old friends. But then Siegel showed up in Hollywood. Ben had been arrested when he was 20 years old on a charge of rape. The accuser recanted her story apparently under some pressure from Siegel's associates, and the charges were dropped. Siegel was already climbing the ranks of the New York Jewish Mafia. He married a girl he grew up with, Esther Krakauer, and had two kids. The family was stored in Scarsdale, while Siegel stayed in the city seeing to his business, which revolved around the sale of bootleg booze. But then Prohibition ended, 
and the mob had to look for new ways to keep making money. The syndicate Siegel was part of, headed by Meyer Lansky, decided to expand into new geographic areas. Siegel settled in Beverly Hills in 1935, renting the mansion owned by opera star Lawrence Tibbet. Siegel volunteered for this cross-country gig, leaving his family and all of his friends behind in New York for the same reason that so many people came to Hollywood. He was hoping to become a different person, to leave the dreaded Bugsy persona behind and remake himself as a genuine high roller. When he rented Tibbet's house, he told the opera singer that he was a sportsman. Siegel was blue-eyed and handsome, and he began to believe he belonged on the silver screen. He paid for headshots and a screen test with less-than-magical results. Understanding that stardom would be a struggle, Bugsy abandoned that dream and became content to merely fraternize with fame and, allegedly, profit off of other people's desire to get it. Hollywood Babylon's claim that Bugsy organized and extorted Hollywood extras pops up in a lot of other books and websites, but in no more detail than what Anger offers, which makes me wonder if Hollywood Babylon is every other source's source. The Screen Extras Guild was established in 1942, which was while Siegel was active in Hollywood. There is no hard evidence that he was involved, and while of course that doesn't mean he definitely wasn't, particularly behind the scenes, particularly as muscle, the only source that seems to have recorded any detail as to what Siegel would have gained from getting involved with the extras is anger. In 1940, SAG began investigating reports that racketeers had violently intimidated and dissuaded extras from seeking work. But this investigation seems to have gone nowhere. What does seem clear is that extras began organizing before Siegel or any gangsters got involved. There had been an extras committee within the Screen Actors Guild for some time before the effort to create a separate guild gathered steam in 1941. Siegel seems to have wanted to be accepted as an equal to Hollywood's most powerful men. And pursuant to that, much of his presence in Hollywood wasn't as a gangster exploiting movie workers, but as a bridge between Hollywood and the underworld. Shortly after settling down in Los Angeles, he accepted an introduction to meet Jean Harlow and her stepfather, Marino Bello. As we've discussed previously on this podcast, Marino Bello was a sleazy guy, but he wasn't quite a gangster. Bello became Siegel's partner in a couple of shady financial schemes, including an offshore gambling boat, into which Raft also sunk a chunk of money. Siegel socialized with Harlow, but she died just a couple of years into his Hollywood sojourn. She was just one star. Bugsy had a whole list of prominent and famous people in Los Angeles that he wanted to befriend. Jack Warner, one of the names on that list, 
rebuffed the gangster. But many others, including, apparently, Clark Gable, Gary Cooper, and Cary Grant, did rub shoulders with him. Much of that fraternizing took place at nightclubs like Ciro's and The Trocadero, both of which were owned and operated by Billy Wilkerson, a former speakeasy owner who had attained an enormous amount of local power as the editor and publisher of The Hollywood Reporter. Wilkerson had started the paper in 1930, and at that time, it was the only locally published daily trade paper in Hollywood. Even Variety, which had begun as the trade paper of theater and vaudeville, didn't have an L.A. office when Wilkerson put down his stake. Wilkerson would write over 8,000 editorials for the reporter between 1930 and 1962. A failed filmmaker himself, Wilkerson held a grudge against the studio heads, who he believed had discriminated against him, a Catholic, when they universally refused to take a chance on distributing a feature he had made in the 1920s. At The Reporter, Wilkerson used his voice to alternately influence studio policy and reinforce it, to disparage the moguls when it suited him and spout the company line when that did. Ultimately, he made a fortune by selling ads to film companies whose reputation and commercial prospects he had the power to manipulate, and by running nightclubs where his staff could eavesdrop on champagne-drunk celebrities and power brokers to generate content for Wilkerson's columns. It was an incredible racket. But it wasn't enough for Wilkerson, who was also a compulsive gambler. He lost money on card games and horse races as fast as the reporter, Ciro's, and his other restaurants could make it. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious, but with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash remember. netsuite.com slash remember. 
netsuite.com slash remember. One of Wilkerson's frequent patrons at his clubs was Virginia Hill, a mysterious glamour girl with a seemingly endless supply of cash and no apparent conventionally legitimate profession. When the Alabama-born Virginia first arrived in Hollywood, fresh from a New York stint as a peripheral Broadway character and escort to gangster Joey Adonis, Hill decided to announce her presence to the locals by offering Wilkerson $5,000 to let her throw a party at Ciro's on a Monday night, when the club was usually closed. This kind of stunt got Virginia's name in the Hollywood papers, heralding a promise of star quality that she was unable to cash in on. She was signed to a contract at Universal, but it was the kind of contract under which she was expected to pose for pinup photos all day and be available to male producers at night. Virginia swiftly recognized this, understood she didn't need it, and bought the contract out. After a short stint in Columbia's acting school, Virginia more or less gave up on being in movies. Anger claims Virginia got a good part in Ball of Fire, but if so, she ended up on the cutting room floor. The only film in which she is known to make an appearance is Manpower, directed by Raoul Walsh, starring Edward G. Robinson and Marlena Dietrich, and released in 1941. Anger makes Hill seem like an up-and-coming starlet whose association with Siegel made him more glamorous. But from what I've read, I think Hill and Siegel were similar in that both were essentially creatures of the underworld who tried to live on the same level as the rich and famous. Both of them attempted to pull off this illusion primarily by throwing a lot of money around. And most of the time, the money they were throwing around had been bilked, loaned, or given to them for services rendered by genuine rich people. That's the nutshell story behind Hill's notoriety. She used the endless credit line provided to her by her sugar daddy, Joe Epstein, a Chicago accountant for a betting outfit, to throw her lavish Hollywood parties and dress to the nines and make sure her name was frequently in the gossip columns. And it's the nutshell story behind Bugsy and The Flamingo. The Flamingo was supposedly Virginia Hill's nickname, by some reports given to her by Joe Epstein and others by Siegel, in reference to her long legs and flaming red hair. Or maybe it was in reference to the fact that when she drank, her cheeks turned pink. Because people believed that Virginia Hill was called the Flamingo, it only seemed logical that Ben Siegel would have created the Flamingo Casino and Hotel in Las Vegas as a monument to her. This is more or less the impression you get from watching the 1991 film Bugsy, written by James Toback, based on a book I've read called We Only Kill Each Other, and starring Warren Beatty as Bugsy and Annette Benning as Virginia Hill. But the more you learn about Siegel, Hill, their relationship, and his relationship to Flamingo the Building, 
the more that apparently simple math seems to fall apart. For one thing, the most trustworthy evidence I've found suggests that the flamingo was not initiated by Siegel, but by Billy Wilkerson, the Hollywood Reporter publisher and Sunset Strip nightclub impresario. Wilkerson had decided to build a casino in Las Vegas as a way of mitigating his own gambling losses. If he was the house, then even when he lost, he would win. Though Anger claims Siegel bought the land from a widow, most histories of the Flamingo allow that it was Wilkerson who sent lawyer Greg Boutzer to make that purchase, and it was Wilkerson who began construction on the casino in early 1945, long before Bugsy Siegel ever became involved. A recent biography of Wilkerson, written by his son, suggests that Wilkerson came up with the name The Flamingo, going the exotic bird route in an effort to mimic the Stork Club. Much of this book seems reliable, but the flamingo thing seems like too much of a coincidence. If Virginia Hill was really nicknamed the Flamingo. The thing is, I can't find any contemporaneous reports that suggest that this was her nickname. And I wonder if maybe this idea that Virginia Hill was called the Flamingo is an urban legend that bubbled up after the fact, after Bugsy was killed and the myth had begun to take hold of him having invented Las Vegas, as is claimed by the jacket copy on the biography, which formed the basis for the movie Bugsy. Wilkerson had been working with various gangsters for a good 20 years before he met Siegel. His dealings with New York booze runners had gone relatively smoothly, and in Los Angeles, mobster Johnny Roselli had been for Wilkerson a kind of all-around fixer. At Wilkerson's clubs, his clientele was a free mix of celebrities and gangsters. Wilkerson had special knowledge of Siegel, who had been a nearly daily patron of a short-lived barber shop Wilkerson had owned, called the Sunset House. There, Wilkerson had become aware of Siegel's famously hot temper, when the gangster, in the middle of an argument with another customer, snatched a straight razor out of a barber's hand and lunged at the other man with it. This kind of thing didn't make headlines. What did make headlines was that when Bugsy had been incarcerated in the downtown L.A. jail awaiting murder charges in 1941, he had used and shown his clout to order in from Ciro's on a daily basis, a stunt which ensured that when the charges were dropped and Siegel was released, he was even more beloved by Hollywood. When Wilkerson first initiated the Flamingo Project, he brought on two casino experts to help him, a bookie named Gus Greenbaum and Mo Sedway, who, like Siegel, reported to mob boss Meyer Lansky. Wilkerson got a big chunk of his initial funding from Bank of America and a smaller chunk from Howard Hughes, 
hoping to earn the rest through gambling, he actually lost most of what he started with. He managed to begin construction in the fall of 1945, in part thanks to making deals with the studios to trade their surplus metal and lumber for discount advertising in The Reporter. But by January 1946, with the Flamingo still in skeletal form, Wilkerson had run out of cash, and he was forced to halt and abandon construction. That's when Mo Sedway brought in Meyer Lansky, who brought in Bugsy Siegel. Wilkerson was offered cash to finish the project, and in exchange, he would keep a one-third ownership of the Flamingo, and he was promised he would retain creative and managerial control. He did not. This episode is brought to you by MUBI, the curated streaming service dedicated to elevating great cinema from around the globe. Every film on MUBI is hand-selected by real people who really love movies, so you get films from iconic directors, from emerging auteurs. There's always something new to discover. And coming up in May, here's something to discover, Gasoline Rainbow, the latest film from the Ross Brothers. They are the acclaimed directors behind another great film you might have seen called Bloody Nose, Empty Pockets. Gasoline Rainbow is about five teens from Inland, Oregon, who pile into a van with a busted taillight to get to a place they've never seen, the Pacific Coast. New York Magazine called it, quote, an ecstatic road trip movie, and that just about sums it up. Gasoline Rainbow opens in U.S. theaters May 10th, and then you can stream it exclusively on Mubi starting May 31st. Best of all, right now, you can try Mubi free for 30 days at Mubi.com slash YMRT. That's M-U-B-I dot slash YMRT for a whole month of great cinema for free. Take the ride. As soon as Siegel was put on the project, he started an effort to push Wilkerson out. Siegel quickly saw the Flamingo as an opportunity to make a legitimate name for himself, even if he got there by illegitimate means. Wilkerson thought of Siegel as his errand boy, but though Bugsy would take the publisher's directions to his face, behind Wilkerson's back, Siegel would treat the project and the money behind it as though they were all his. Siegel would often give the contractors instructions that were the opposite of what Wilkerson had dictated. He spent money wildly and stupidly, often authorizing a piece of the project without acquiring all the necessary information and then having to spend double when that piece had to be redone. By the end of the summer of 1946, with the support of his mob bosses, Siegel had essentially pushed Wilkerson out of a position of creative input. And then a few months later, when other investors began to get restless, Bugsy somehow convinced Wilkerson to apply for a bank loan to keep construction going, in hopes of salvaging his initial investment. Hoping to start earning money fast that could help him pay off his creditors, Siegel decided to advance the opening date of the Flamingo from March 1947 to the day after Christmas 1946. He planned a massive gala opening that he hoped would instantly establish the casino as the it place for Hollywood to vacation. Despite ample evidence that the casino would not be ready for action by the new opening date, Wilkerson so hoped Bugsy's plan would work that he paid for a publicity campaign featuring smiling, scantily clad women 
essentially promising male gamblers that at the Flamingo, it would be easy to get laid. But then, before opening night, Siegel threatened to kill Wilkerson, and Wilkerson went into hiding in Paris. The opening weekend of the Flamingo was a disaster. Flights were grounded due to bad weather, and the only celebrities to make the drive from L.A., aside from George Raft, were not quite A-list. Raft told Siegel that William Randolph Hearst had told all the big stars to stay away, which might be true, although Hearst's influence in 1946 was not what it had been a decade earlier. The dealers and servers had been badly trained, and somehow, every night, the house racked up a loss. One of Siegel's biographers suspects the casino had somehow been sabotaged by the owners of Nevada's competing, working-class gambling houses, who were afraid of being taken over by glossy upstarts. But to that point, the Flamingo didn't look like much of a threat. By the end of its first two weeks in operation, the Flamingo had lost a record-breaking amount of money, and Siegel was forced to close the doors. Virginia Hill, who according to one report had secretly married a newly divorced Siegel a few months earlier, hated Las Vegas. And when the casino closed, she moved back to Beverly Hills and let her maybe husband stew in his losses in the desert alone. Siegel was determined to reopen the joint his way, and in order to do so, he had to get rid of Wilkerson. The Hollywood Reporter publisher asked for $2 million in exchange for his shares. According to one report, favorable to Siegel, Wilkerson settled for $120,000. According to another report, favorable to Wilkerson, the total was $600,000. In any case, Wilkerson lost more on the venture than even he probably could have gambled away during that period of time, and the Flamingo became entirely Siegel's albatross. The casino reopened in March, and business started to pick up, but Siegel had racked up so much debt that he was still unable to pay back his investors. Virginia Hill had already physically left Siegel months before, although their relationship remained in limbo. Anger is correct that in the summer of 1947, she did sail for Europe at the invitation of another man, and she did allow Bugsy to keep the keys to her Beverly Hills home. He came to L.A. on June 19th and moved into a guest room in Hill's house, down the hall from where her younger brother Chick was shacked up with a girl he had recently secretly married. The next night, after dinner, while Chick was upstairs with his lady, Benjamin Siegel was murdered while sitting in the living room of the house. The shots came from outside the window. The LAPD's investigation was cursory, and no one was ever charged. The Flamingo was taken over by Gus Greenbaum and Moe Sedway, and under their mob-supervised control, it thrived. 
It's true that none of Siegel's Hollywood friends attended his funeral, which was held at Hollywood Forever Cemetery, including Raft, but neither did any of his mob cronies. It was a family-only affair, Siegel's biological family being the only people on Earth who didn't feel as though Siegel had cheated or screwed them. Virginia Hill was not there, and there has been some speculation that she had Bugsy killed, perhaps by her own brother. Whether or not there is any truth to that, Virginia spent the rest of her life suffering. She had tried to kill herself with an overdose of sleeping pills at least once before Siegel's murder. She tried again many times after his death. She was always saved by the stomach pump, until one day she decided to make an attempt where no one who could pump her stomach could find her. She had been living in Austria, and one day in 1966, she drove through a mountain village, parked on the outskirts and walked, alone, into the snowy woods. There she took 28 pills, washing them down with icy water that she cupped with her hands from a stream. There was no one to stop her or save her, and she died at age 49. In 2014, the son of Mo Sedway came forward to tell Los Angeles Magazine that his mother's lover had killed Bugsy at the direction of his father. Mo Sedway had been the money manager at the Flamingo during its rocky development and launch, and he knew just how badly Siegel was misspending. One day, Siegel threatened to kill Sedway. Instead, Siegel was killed, and Sedway was handed the reins of the casino by Lansky, the boss of the mob, who had sanctioned Bugsy's execution. Sedway's wife, B, the killer's girlfriend, insisted that Siegel had not been killed for money, but for love, by one man she loved, to protect the other man she loved. It's as good a story as any, is it not? Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. Today's episode was written, narrated, and produced by Karina Longworth. That's me. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our social media assistant is Brendan Whalen. This episode was edited by Cameron Drews. And our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. For more information about this episode and other episodes, please go to our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com. There you'll find show notes for every episode with information about our sources, music used, and much more. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can, any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter, at RememberThisPod, and we're on Facebook and Instagram, too. And my book, Seduction, Sex, Lies, and Stardom in Howard Hughes' Hollywood, is available now from Amazon or your local independent bookstore. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night. 